Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This is Basketball History 101 with Rick Loiza. Welcome back to Basketball History 101. I am your host, Rick Loiza, and this is the podcast where we bring to life some of the forgotten stories from basketball history. And today we're going to talk about the development of the jump shot. We're going all the way back to the 1930s. Back in those early days of basketball, it was considered proper form to shoot a two-handed set shot. You would put your feet fairly close together and bend at the knees, and then launch the ball using both hands. It kind of looked like a chest pass toward the ceiling. You wanted a nice arc on the ball, and you would never, ever leave the floor. Your feet maintained contact with the court the entire time. Now keep in mind that the game of basketball was only around 40 years old, and things that were considered proper form back then would not be considered proper form today. One of the things that I love about basketball is that there is always someone trying to push the boundaries to find a new way to play or a new strategy to exploit. The game of basketball is never done. It's always developing. So back to the two-handed set shot. The basic offense was to pass the ball around the perimeter, set screens for each other, and work to get somebody wide open for a set shot. And when I say wide open, I mean wide open because it was considered bad form to jump. So when you were shooting a flat-footed shot, you needed plenty of space to do so. And without a shot clock, it could take a whole minute or more of passing the ball around before a wide-open shot presented itself. And this was considered fundamental offense. This is how all the best schools played. And all the best schools at the time were located in and around New York City. Some of the most dominant college teams of the day were Columbia, Manhattan, New York University, St. Joseph's, City College of New York, Fordham, and Long Island University. And nobody questioned this style of offense since the schools who played it best were dominating the college basketball scene. But out west, there was one player and coach who tried something different, and they found that it was working. Out at Stanford, Hank Lucetti was perfecting a one-handed running jump shot. His coach Johnny Bunn had designed a system that exploited Lucetti's unique skill of being able to run, jump, and still get the shot off that went in more often than it didn't. It was an absolute revelation. This distinctly West Coast style of offense was sometimes called the avalanche system because these teams liked playing a fast, wide-open style of basketball that was designed to overwhelm the opponent with the number of shots they took. After all, the more shots you take, the more shots you make. And in this system, Lucetti had many games where he scored in the 30s. And this was back in the day when entire teams might only score 40 points for the whole game. He was completely lighting up West Coast basketball. Unfortunately, back then there was no ESPN and no nightly highlights. 
The only way to know what was happening on the West Coast was to read the sports section of your local newspaper two days later. If a team played on the West Coast on a Friday night, it would not make it into the East Coast papers on Saturday morning because of the time difference. By the time the game finished on the West Coast, the East Coast papers were already printing out Saturday's edition. You couldn't find out about a West Coast basketball game until Sunday morning, two days later. And even with that, the only thing you ever knew about a player is from what you read. You had to rely on how the sports writer described the action and then let your imagination fill in the details. And Lucetti was gaining a huge reputation on the East Coast when they looked at those box scores and saw how he was just torching teams right and left. But in late December of 1936, Stanford would go on an East Coast road trip. And this was a huge deal. For the first time, East Coast basketball fans were going to be able to see this West Coast phenom. Back then, Madison Square Garden was the center of college basketball. On most Saturdays during the season, the Garden would schedule double and triple headers of college games. So for just a single ticket, you could go to the Garden and see as many as six of the best teams in the country battle it out. And the college teams always wanted to play a game at the Garden because it sat nearly 18,000 people. No other arena in the country could match that back then. This was the 1930s. So on this particular Saturday, Stanford would be playing Long Island University, or LIU. This was going to be a major East Coast-West Coast matchup of Goliaths. LIU was on a 43-game winning streak going back two seasons. Their coach, Claire B., was ready to show those West Coasters how basketball was supposed to be played. The East Coast way. Well, that attitude only lasted for about as long as it took to have the opening tip-off. Once the game got started, the LIU players had no idea what to do with Lucetti. They didn't know how to defend him. I mean, the guy was actually jumping to take a shot? They knew it was coming, but there was no defense for it. At the time, the fundamentals of defense said that you never leave your feet, no matter what. Jumping on defense was considered bad defense. So when Lucetti took off for another one-handed runner, the defender would not jump with him because that's not what you were supposed to do. Lucetti was getting clean shot after clean shot, but he wasn't just a scorer. Lucetti could dribble and pass with the best of them. He was truly an all-around playmaker. He knew that LIU's defense were gonna concentrate on him, so he drew defenders and then would pass to the open teammate. The crowd at the Garden had never seen anything like it. The true basketball purists could not believe what they were seeing. A guy was actually jumping to shoot the ball. But they loved the result, and the crowd quickly turned toward the West Coasters and began cheering them on. With each of Lucetti's baskets, the crowd got louder and louder. While the technique shattered every notion of what a proper shot should look like, they could not deny the results. It was an extremely exciting brand of basketball. You see, they were looking at the future of the game unfold before them, and they loved it. The next day, the New York Times said, quote, It seemed that Lucetti could do nothing wrong. Some of his shots would seem foolhardy if attempted by any other player, but with Lucetti doing the heaving, they were accepted by the crowd as a matter of course. Now, I wish I could tell you that Lucetti scored 50 points that night, but he didn't. He scored 15 points in a 45-31 victory over LIU. For LIU, that was a butt-whooping. But it was enough to turn the basketball world on its head. Mighty Long Island University and their 43-game winning streak were no more. 
By the standards of the day, losing by 14 was getting completely dominated and it's like losing by 35 today. Later, Lucetti would become the first player in NCAA history to score 50 points in a single game. But what he did on the garden that night was more than enough to change the course of the game and cause people to rethink all of the ideas that they considered fundamental and correct. Matt Holman, a Hall of Fame player, was coaching City College of New York at the time and witnessed the game. Afterward, he said that he would quit coaching altogether before teaching any of his players a one-handed shot. Of course, that would change as even Holman eventually came around. The game was going to change whether he liked it or not, so eventually he changed with it. He would later coach City College of New York to the NCAA Championship in 1950, where his players used one-handed jump shots to great effectiveness. Now Lucetti didn't invent the one-handed jump shot. Nobody truly knows who shot it that way first. The game was developing in all corners of the country at the same time. It's like trying to figure out who discovered fire first. Nobody really knows. But the Basketball Hall of Fame unofficially acknowledges a player by the name of Glenn Roberts, who used that shot to lead his high school to a Virginia State Championship in 1931. Another player named John Cooper used the one-handed jump shot at the University of Missouri in the early 1930s. At the same time as Cooper, there was a guy named Conley Watts from the University of Utah who also used the shot. But no one questions the person who made the shot popular. That was Hank Lucetti at Madison Square Garden that night. After he torched LIU, you started to see all of the East Coast schools begin to experiment with a jump shot. Over the next few years, every team had at least one guy who could shoot the ball with one hand. The two-handed set shot would quickly disappear from the game. And with most everything in life, things develop slowly and steadily as small improvements are made to whatever the thing is that you're working on. Like the development of the automobile or computers. It's just small changes over time that make the improvements. But for basketball, this is one of those times where the game took a major leap forward on a single afternoon. As we look at some of the great jump shooters from history, guys like Jerry West, Pete Maravich, Larry Bird, Reggie Miller, or Ray Allen, they can all be traced back to Hank Lucetti, each generation building on the techniques that came before. And now you have a guy like Steph Curry who shoots 35-foot jump shots the way other players shoot layups. I can't wait to see what the next generation of jump shooters look like. The game is always under development as players and coaches continue to push the boundaries of skill and strategy. If history is any indicator, then I can't wait to see what the game's going to look like in another 20 or 30 years. So join us next time when we talk about how some NBA teams got their nicknames. Like, why are the Clippers called the Clippers? That's what we're going to talk about next. I want to thank my producer and editor, Jacob Loiza. Join us next time as we continue to mine the history of basketball for more great stories from the past. Take care and see you soon. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are 
passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. This is Mark Mortier, and if you're a sports history fan like me, tune in and hear me talk about some great sports moments of the past. Growing up during the 1970s, I got to watch some of the most iconic moments in sports history. Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. Willis Reed limping out of the locker room in Game 7 of the NBA Finals at Madison Square Garden as the fans erupted with a thunderous ovation. The 1980 Miracle on Ice as Team USA defeated the powerful Soviet Union in the Olympics. Listen every Tuesday on Yesterday's Sports. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.